Thank you, Byron. I had I'd hoped to have a mother-daughter combination read that passage because it's about a little girl. But Hillary and Audrey, Hillary's out with COVID. Rebecca and Evangeline, who've done it, are in the nursery covering for Hillary. So the Lord said COVID is not going to let that happen today. But it would have been really neat to have a mother and daughter read that just amazing passage about the raising of a little 12-year-old girl. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary story. I've been doing a series on what is called Gospel Conversations. This will be the last one. It's conversations that Jesus had with people who were typically outcast. The Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus, people, who, and he broke the barriers to reach through them with the gospel and show that Gentiles and women and people who are poor or people who are just not looked well upon by the religious establishment, that the gospel breaks the barriers and brings all people together. This is, again, one of those stories, and just an extraordinary one. But let me begin by telling you that I had something of a gospel conversation this past week, because we take the gospel wherever we go. So this past Thursday was kind of fun. Be guess where I was Thursday night? The New England Patriots were in town playing the Falcons. So I was there, and it was – the Falcons need to step it up a bit. You know, it was – can I just tell you one thing that was – it was a fun game because actually what a lot of people do is that they fly in from New England to watch them here because it's easier to get a ticket here than it is in Foxborough, Massachusetts. And, so, and a lot of people make these kinds of trips. One of the, can I just kvetch about something is that every time the players aren't playing, the noise in that dome is so loud, it's like, I'm in an, an, it's like there's a jackhammer just constantly pounding. And I still have a splitting headache from it, but I wish they would just keep it down a little bit. But I was there, and I sat next to – I went with a friend of mine who lives here, who's from New England, like I am, but sat next to a father and a son, and the son's from Boston, and, and the father is from Falmouth, Maine, which is about 95 miles south of where our house in Maine is. So we got to talking, and I asked him what he does, and that it was really neat because – the dad and the son, who's probably in his 20s, they take a father-son trip every year because they work in a software business together. But every year they take kind of a business and just a father-son trip. So this year they came to watch the Patriots, flew down. So I asked them what they do. They do a software company. And so they asked, what do, what do I do? And it was so loud, I could, he could hardly hear me. So I pull out of my phone a picture of our church sign, Christ Presbyterian Church, I work here. And I was finally able to tell him what I do. So the man said to me, oh, you work for God. <laughs> yeah, I do, but I'd like to think that all the people in our congregation work for God as well. <laughs> and so we got to talking, and 
I said, I'm, I'm here at this Presbyterian church, and they happen to be Roman Catholic, a lot of Roman Catholics in, in, uh, Rome, in New England, of course. So he said, hey, can you, can you do anything for the Roman Catholic church? And I said, I'd be happy to, but I'm not sure that the Pope would let me. So <laughs> but we were having this conversation, and as it turned out, the son had just had a new baby, and the, just a newborn, and the son said, I haven't slept for three days. And so I said, oh, so you're on a trip and your wife is now at home having the sleepless nights. And he said, yeah, but she's with her mother, so she's taken care of too. But it, and he showed me this picture of this little baby. She was precious, probably a week old. But I thought, what a really delightful thing that they're doing. It's the, fa it's the father's first grandchild, the son's first new baby, and they're just celebrating father and son together, and they're celebrating the birth of this really cute new baby girl. And I thought, this is what a delightful thing to do. I had a nice conversation with them, and who knows, maybe I'll run into them again, but it was really neat to meet them. But it showed me that this is, this is one of the joys of life, family, a new baby, a, new, a young married, just, just the joy and the delight that that brings. And many of us have experienced that because I have a wife and three kids, and I still remember their – it was like yesterday they were just newborn, and how did they grow up so fast? But it, it's just a delightful part of life. But on the other hand, we know that we live in a sinful world that has brought the curse into every aspect of life, right? Our, we're alienated from God. We have a sinful nature that's been redeemed in Christ, but the curse of the fall affects everything. It affects our bodies, and it particularly affects sexuality, childbearing, and one of the delightful parts of life also deals with the curse as well. And that is what is going on here as Jesus with the life-giving gospel, is restoring and giving life and hope to two women who have lost all hope. One, a little girl who was 12 years old, and another, a young woman. We don't know how old she was, but there's no reason to think she was that old, maybe in her 20s. But I want to... Uh, Look at this, because the main point that we want to make is that the gospel just brings hope and resurrection life to us in every aspect in this world that's just been incredibly ruined by sin. I want to talk about the implications of this, but let's just enjoy the story. Fascinating. And this is one of those stories where... This account is given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those Gospels. The one in Mark is much longer. The stories don't contradict each other. There's just more detail in Mark, so that's why I chose to look at that one. Jesus is doing his ministry, and it says, when Jesus had crossed over the lake, one of the synagogue leaders comes to him in a panic named Jairus. 
Now, the synagogue was an important institution in the Jewish life. It was like their local church. You had the temple where the sacrifices had to be sacrificed, but every local community had a synagogue, just like Jewish people do now. There was a leader, there was teaching, there was worship. But the synagogue leader was, that's a pretty important religious position. He was kind of like the pastor or leader, I guess, of that local synagogue. So in that culture, a a Jewish culture, a very, very important position. Well, he comes to Jesus in a panic, and he says, my little daughter is dying. We don't know what she had, but she had some kind of disease, and they knew she was dying. Please put your hands on her so that she might live. And it's really interesting to, we need to put ourselves back in that culture because now, of course, we have all kinds of medicine and technology and you have ultrasounds and x-rays and if a little girl is dying, you'd rush her to the ER or the hospital and they would be able to find out what it is, hopefully diagnose it, and there would be a cure. Remember back then, they didn't have the kind, they had doctors, but they didn't have the medical resources that we have today. So infant mortality was high. And one of the tragic things is, and I don't know the statistics on it, but the death rate was much higher. And, and you know, just one of the tragic things they faced was the loss of young children because they just didn't know how to cure them. Because there would have been cancer and disease and just all kinds of things then, just as it is now. So they know she's dying. She's probably at home on her bed, and he comes to Jesus in a panic. We know you can heal. Please come and lay your hands on her and heal her. You're the only one who can help us. Because remember, Jesus had been healing people already, so they knew what Jesus could do. And so while they're involved, and and just imagine the panic that this man would be in. Daughter's dying. No. And so while this conversation is going on, and there's quite a bit of hubbub, there's two stories sandwiched together. Another woman comes up, probably an older woman. Again, we don't know how old she is, but maybe in her 20s. Not, no reason to think she's that old. And she had heard about Jesus too. And so she needs healing herself. And so she came along and is trying to get at Jesus too while he's in the middle of this other thing. And it says this, she had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd spent a great deal of care under many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So here's a woman who's subject to bleeding. And basically what this is, what the text makes clear, is that this it's, it's a vaginal bleeding. It's a menstrual issue where there's a continuous bleeding from that er- part of her body that had been going on for 12 years. And I looked up what could this be. It could be polyps or fibroids or endometriosis, something like that. 
and it says she would went to doctors, spent everything she had. They couldn't cure it. Now you'd have an ultrasound, you'd have an MRI, and, and in many cases they would probably be able to take care of it today. But back then they just didn't have the medical resources. So it was, you know, every woman has the, the monthly menstrual flow, but this was just a continuous bleeding for 12 years. And so, but the thing that I want you to see, and I want to give you some background on this, because this wasn't just a bleed which would probably weaken her and, you know, it'd be a pain to deal with, but I want to take you back for what this meant if a woman had this in that culture. And you have to go back to Leviticus 15 where it talks about this kind of thing. And it's interesting, I won't go into the whole thing, but if you read Leviticus 15, there are Old Testament ceremonial laws which kind of symbolize our sinfulness and the curse that rests on the fall. So for instance, when a woman gave birth to a, a child, she was unclean for seven days, had to offer a sacrifice. When a woman had her monthly menstrual flow, she was unclean for seven days and then would offer a sacrifice. And I want you to know this is not demeaning to you as a woman, but it's simply saying this is kind of a symbolic way of the Lord showing people that there is a curse that's fallen on all of us. It affects our bodies. It affects women in particular ways. And so a sacrifice needed to be offered. But what I want you to hear what this meant. A woman who had this kind of continuous bleeding, it would mean she would be constantly in a state of uncleanness in that culture. And what that would mean is she would be something of an outcast. The other thing it would mean is she wouldn't be able to marry anyone. She probably couldn't have children. And so in a sense, she was an outcast. No man was going to marry her. A man couldn't marry her. It meant she couldn't have children. And so you can see the situation she's in. It isn't just a bleed, which was hard enough to deal with. But in a sense, it was it was it put her outside the community and she wouldn't be able to enter in to the life of sexuality and having children and getting married. It was a, imagine yourself as maybe a 25 year old woman and your future was never get married, can't have children, I'm always gonna be outside. It, it's just a horrific thing that she was dealing with. She'd spent everything she had to try to get it healed and they just didn't know how to do it. Today we probably would be able to figure it out. But so you can see the dilemma she's in. And she obviously knew she wasn't worthy because she was an outcast to come up and in face Jesus face to face. So you see what she does? She has such faith. She says, if I can just push my way through the crowd and just touch the hem of his garment, that, that will heal me. Maybe he won't even know I did it because I'm not worthy to be in his presence. And so she comes up to him and touches his cloak and she's healed. But you can't fool Jesus, can you? 
<laughs> he obviously knows she did it, and the sense, and it says he realized that the power had gone out, and he says, "Who touched me?" Now, when we were going to the Patriots game, have you ever been on the MARTA train when it's just packed with like a thousand people in one car? Fifty people are touching me. I don't know who touched me. But there's this huge crowd. People are jostling all over. The woman imperceptibly touches him. She's healed. And so Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples say, what what are you talking about? Who touched me? There's all kinds of people. Look at all these people crowding around you. How do we know? Could have been any one of several people. But he keeps looking around because he wants to speak to the woman. And she's healed. And listen to these extraordinary words. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, given her situation, would anyone have called her daughter? No. But Jesus did. And she touched his clothes, the bleeding stopped, and he says, your faith has healed you. These incredible words, go in peace, be freed from your suffering. And you see, what this means is it wasn't just a healing of this vaginal flow. That was enough. But what would it mean for her? She could be brought back into the community. She'd be able to be married. She'd be able to have children and have a family of her own. And there's no reason to think that that didn't happen. It very, very likely did, which is just extraordinary. So he heals an outcast woman and restores her through miraculous power to new life and community. So you have that, and then the story (laughs) switches back. Because while this is going on, Guess what happens while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, the little girl died. And, you know, I kind of know what this is like because we're coming up on the 15th anniversary of my father's death. At the time, he was living with my brother in Tennessee, and we knew he was dying. And so the kids were much smaller, and so we were getting ready to pack up and go visit him in Tennessee, and we never made it because he died before we could get there. And, um, I mean, it was sad. We had seen him not too long ago, but we didn't even start on the trip because my brother called me and said, Dad's dead, and we didn't make it. But that's, that's what happened. And in this case, it's the same thing. The little girl's dying, but before Jesus gets there, she died. And so that would just be, oh, no, we've lost our chance. And if this woman hadn't interrupted him, he would have gotten there on time. But Jesus goes anyway. Don't be afraid. Just believe. So he walks in, and he takes Peter, James, and John, and... Of course, there's all kinds of commotion and wailing because can you imagine they're in a house and the friends come and a 12-year-old girl has just died. 
there would be extraordinary mourning and just grief. And her parents just would have been beside themselves. I just can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child at 12. That's the curse of the fall. That's not supposed to happen. It's just horrible, horrible to even think about it. But Jesus walks in and he says, the child isn't dead. He's asleep. And they laugh. What are you talking about? He's dead. No, no. He's asleep. And he takes her on the hand. And this is interesting because probably at that time, Jesus was speaking in Aramaic. He spoke in Greek, but often spoke in Aramaic. Talithakum, which means little girl, get up. And they're thinking, duh, she's dead. Why are you telling someone to get up when she's dead? And this is, this is kind of funny because I have, you know what it's like when you're trying to get a child up, they're sleeping and they're sleeping really hard. It's like Katie, my wife, she sleeps harder than anyone I know. And sometimes I have to walk in and wake her up and it's like, get up, time to get up, time to get up. And you yell because it takes a while. And they're thinking, you're nuts. She's not alive. You're not asleep. She's dead. But he's being wonderfully ironic because, of course, in the New Testament, the idea of falling asleep when you die is kind of a metaphor because it means someone who's fallen asleep is going to wake up again. You, you sleep, you get up in the morning, and that is a metaphor for the resurrection. When we die, we go immediately to be with Jesus in spirit. Our bodies may go into the ground, but Paul speaks of them as sleeping because they're going to wake up in life again. And this anticipates that. She's not dead. She's asleep. And then she gets up. She walks around. And Jesus, being very practical, says, give her something to eat. She's going to be hungry after all this. Just put yourself in that extraordinary situation if you can little girl dies. Jesus raises her. And you wonder, how much of this did she remember in terms of dying and being raised again? Give her something to eat. She walks around. And this 12-year-old girl was restored to her parents. And they probably would see her grow up, marry, have a family of her own. In a sense, both women were raised from the dead in some ways. This little girl raised from the dead literally. The woman, in a sense, was in a living death, being outcast. Jesus restored her to wholeness as well through his resurrection power. Let me just give a couple of implications. This is an extraordinary story, isn't it? It's just, it's just amazing. Wonderful. Just a couple of imp implications here is that this story, this extraordinary story of Jesus with these two young women, a little girl, a young woman, it gives us resurrection hope. The gospel brings us resurrection hope. Because the reality is that 
Jesus raised this the little girl from physical death, the other young woman with the vaginal flow from a kind of spiritual death, from a living death, and restored them both to life. He gave them the opportunity to be married, to have children, and to enter into society, into community again. But of course, these two would die again at some point. And this anticipates the fact that all of us, as healthy as we might be, even though we're in Christ, our bodies will die. You know, I just hit 60 years old, and I... I'm so blessed to be in good health, but I'm starting to feel it. I've got issues of getting older just like you do. And it makes you think I'm on the back end of my life and you don't live forever. But my hope is that, of course, when I die, my, I immediately go to be with Jesus. But the hope, but eternal life isn't just being some disembodied spirit up in a cloud somewhere. Your body will rise from the grave again. You will receive a resurrection body on a new heaven and a new earth. And this body that's so fragile and broken will be restored to perfection in the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus comes again. This story shows the fragility of bodies. But 1 Corinthians 15, 42, Paul says in speaking of how Jesus' resurrection means that we will rise when he returns. It says, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that's sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's so natural, it's raised as spiritual. What are our bodies like now? What was these, this little girl and this young woman's bodies like? They were weak, perishable, dishonorable in some ways in that culture. But the new bodies that Jesus gives us when he returns will be glorious, eternal. That's the resurrection hope that we all have. All of us are in our own way are as weak and frail as they are because of the result of the fall. And how do we get this? It's very simple. It's by faith. Faith is simply being desperate, having nothing to offer and coming to Jesus for help and doing it. He raised the little girl. He healed the woman. And that's what faith is. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Be freed from your suffering. And this is how our acceptance with the Heavenly Father comes. It's not by what we do. It's not by being powerful. But it's being desperately weak and hopeless. And in repentance and desperation. <coughs> desperation. In faith, we look to him, we touch the hem of his garment. He alone can heal us simply by looking to him at the cross. And that is why we're in him today. And just one final thing, and let me finish with this. And this, this to me is just so touching, is that 
Look at, look at Jesus' concern for women, for the outcasts, for people who in that culture didn't count for much. Look at his extraordinary concern for women. Seeing a 12-year-old girl die, people saw it a lot. And this woman with the vaginal bleeds, she was an outcast. Look at his compassionate concern for her. He says to this woman, daughter, your royalty. And that shows how the gospel is bringing men and women and outcast and poor and people who don't count for much into his kingdom. And <coughs> there are several little girls in this church. And what the gospel says is you are royalty. You are daughters of the king. Because little girls are under an awful lot of pressure, aren't they? To look this way, to be that. And, and little girls feel it in particular from social media and bullying and what people think of them. And the gospel says to little girls in Christ, you are daughters of the king, you're royalty. And here in this church, that's what we're going to tell them all the time. You are royalty because Jesus cares that much for you. But this is, this is him breaking the boundaries, bringing the outcast and the lost and the people who don't count for much into his kingdom where we're all sons and daughters. Because really, their story is really ours because we're, we're as lost as they were. Alluding to this, Isaiah 64, 6 said, all of us have become like one who's unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags, referring to the condition the woman had that made her unclean. We're as lost and hopeless as those two young women were. But at the cross, through our union with him, Jesus gives us new life and hope for now and resurrection hope for the future. And in worship, we celebrate that we are sons and daughters of the king now and forever. Amen.